Welcome to the Space Between podcast. I am William. And I'm Katie. And in this podcast, we talk about the complexities of life, faith in the 21st century, and everything in between. Often, that space between is where a lot of us find ourselves. We hope to provide a place where people can be honest and we can engage with one another with compassion wherever we may end up on our journey. Hello and welcome to the Space Between podcast. Today we have Megan Chance. Um, Nice to have you on today, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to getting into this discussion about your book and uh, some of the stuff that you've got in that. But for those who haven't heard of you, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so my name is Megan Chance, as you have already said. Um, I am a former missionary, so I was very entrenched in the white evangelical church here in the United States, um, who worked with sexually trafficked women. And through working with these women, realized that my church was complicit, um, and I was complicit in their harm and in what was causing them harm. Um, So I quit my job. Uh, became a raging feminist, um, started a, a podcast called Faith and Feminism. And I've been trying to reclaim feminism for the Christian faith ever since. I've written a book about it. Um, and I mean, if I'm sure people in um, England, the United Kingdom know what's happening here in the United States. We just had a shooting a week ago where uh, women were murdered uh, after because they were temptations to this man so anyways this whole concept of what led that man to murder is basically what I have realized through working with women and really need to address so uh want to want to reclaim feminism for the Christian faith I want to get the church to treat women better yeah um I think that's really important what you touched on the links between uh the shootings that have happened recently mm-hmm. and the exploitation and also violence towards women that often occurs mm-hmm. and we'll get into that a little bit later on when we talk some about the connections between purity culture and rape culture but also talk mm-hmm. about violence but uh while you were a missionary um you were working with exploited women um mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about the injustices that you witnessed while you were doing that Yeah. So, um, I mean, (laughs) there's, so I want, before I dive into like my missionary work, I do want to talk a little bit about white saviorism and this concept that, um, uh, that white people, or at least white people in my context here in the United States, the conservative evangelical church were kind of raised to believe that we were people saviors, that, um, we could fix other people's problem in a matter of seconds or not seconds, maybe in a couple of days, but maybe by saying the Jesus prayer, whatever. Um, and so I had to deconstruct a lot of that, which we might get more into later, but I just want to issue that caveat. And it was something I did learn through my work. Um, but the first, I went on um, a program called the world race in 2012. The reason I chose missions work is because um, I wanted to serve God. And as a woman, my options were extremely limited. I could either be a pastor's wife or I could be a missionary because leading, teaching, preaching was not open to me um, in the context I grew up from. So missionary work was a way for me 
to, I guess, kind of explore <laughs> my options as a woman. Um, and so I went on this program called the World Race. And very quickly on, I saw uh, one of our contacts in Ireland. Uh, he actually, which I wouldn't, I wasn't expecting, but was super conservative, talked about God's order that women were supposed to be on the bottom, that they, uh, you know, were like, if they didn't have head coverings were unholy. Um, and so that like experiencing that in another culture and context from the one I grew up in kind of painted what I had grown up in in extreme relief. And through that realized I was not the only one because I was on this group or on this trip with other women realized I was not the only one had endured this and started questioning it. And so several months later, I was in Kenya. Um, and our role there was to give talks to um, students because again, white saviorism, because we were white, we were equipped to give talks on perseverance to groups of 600 students when women and young girls growing up in sub-Saharan Africa who have to fight to get an education probably know a little bit more about perseverance than we did. Yeah. Regardless, I was there giving these talks and I had young girls come up to me afterwards and ask me about female circumcision. <clears throat> and I remember hearing something about female circumcision from my college classes I never thought I would ever experience it in the flesh. And uh, so I, I I kind of, even when she asked me that, it just took me off guard. It was, it was like a question after like pizza. It was like, you guys eat pizza in, in America? Yes. Do you guys have female circumcision? And I just remember saying no at the time, not being aware that female circumcision is still present here in the United States. Um, but the actual term that we're looking at is the term female genital mutilation. So for those who are not familiar with what FGM is, it's a procedure that either removes the clitoris or the whole external um, genitalia of a, of a young girl. And it's an ancient uh, tradition um, so that women, it's a way of controlling women's sexuality. And so the results from that are extremely far ranging and dangerous. It either makes sex, a bare minimum makes sex extremely painful. The clitoris has so many nerve endings and you just with no anesthesia or a doctor or trained anything, these local people will cut it off. So not only is there a risk to bleed to death, but that woman will have uh, painful, painful sex for the rest of her life. Um, the more extreme versions where they remove the whole um, external genitalia is it creates um, issues where the there's so much scar tissue that the whole like there's problems when they urinate. There's pro when if if it comes to have if they ever get pregnant and have a child, the baby will often get stuck and then the baby will die inside the mother. And, and in these areas, there's often a lack of healthcare access to healthcare. So not only is it extremely damaging process to survive because there is no anesthesia, because it is extremely painful. But in addition to that, uh, there's lifelong consequences, not to mention, yeah, trauma, emotional trauma. And so the next time, so I, I kept on giving these talks, had girls ask me that quite often. And I finally made the connection that this was happening here. There's a reason that they were asking me this question. And one day after my talk, four girls came up to me again, asked me the question. I started going into what I knew from the World Health Organization about female uh, circumcision or female genital mutilation. 
And immediately these girls hung their head in shame. And I, I felt terrible because I thought I was making something that was happening to them worse because they don't need to wear shame for something that was done to them. And then one of them told me that all of the women had, all of the women in this village had experienced it. And uh, then they also told me and like in the same breath about the other injustices they endured from having to fight to go to school, from being beaten, for doing their homework, for all the chores they had to do and how they saw their brothers have all of the access to education in the world and be encouraged to where they had to fight for their education. And one of them afterwards told me that she was being raped by her uncle. And so I started to make this connection that these, this huge, or started to ask the question, are these patriarchal roles and influences not so different from what I was raised with this idea that women need to be in the home and do all the housework and take care of the children. Um, obviously much more extreme version here, but it was the same kind of idea. I started wondering, does this have to do with the oppression and violence of women? Um, and so I, mean, I asked my contact about it. He said all of the girls between the ages of 10 and 13 once a year are taken into this shed basically. And he told me that sometimes girls bleed to death on their way home as they're celebrated with balloons. And so he told me that he was hiding girls in his church, but when, but for the most part, it was just too pervasive of a tradition in his area. And there wasn't much headway being done. And so since I've learned that, you know, I've educated myself more and there's actually a lot of fight against female genital mutilation. And most of the, the success is coming from women who have survived it themselves um, that are from these communities. So I think that's also really important to note. Um, and so the next month, I more women told me that they were being beaten. Um, it was in Tanzania. And so I thought, you know, maybe I could help them because I felt like I did nothing <laughs> the month previous and had to really confront some more white saviorism. And then um, it wasn't until like month six that I was working with women who had been trafficked from Nepal and India. So have you seen Slumdog Millionaire? Yes. Okay. So it was kind of, it actually reminded me a lot of some dog millionaires in a city, Navi, Mumbai, which is a I guess the new Mumbai and an outskirt of Mumbai and uh, these women had been trafficked from Nepal. And so the situation there is Nepal um, has a lot of impoverished people and traffickers from India will go to Nepal and say, hey, we can give your daughter or your son a better opportunity in India, get them a great job and we'll send you back money. Unfortunately, what's happening is these traffickers are actually sending these children either into like uh, forced labor or into forced sex trade. And so in this particular context, I worked with a contact who his, he, um, was aware of this red light district where women had been trafficked in Nepal from Nepal. And he was talking to a young boy that his mother was being trafficked. And he said that, um, he would have to be under the bed when he was younger, when his mom was being raped. And so he thought, okay, well, I can't do anything to help these women at the moment because the, the police force is corrupt, these pimps are violent, but maybe I can help like their children. And so he started a, a, for lack of a better term, a daycare center where these children went for the day while they're there or their night when the parents are, when the mothers are being trafficked. And um, 
there I met this young girl who was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. So her mother was sold when she was six months old. And now she's the property of a pimp who sold women for a living. Um, and I immediately just got really attached to her and found out her story. She had, she had um, a hearing problem where um, if you spoke, she couldn't hear you, but if you like yelled, she could hear you. So something that could probably be corrected with hearing aids or um, some other therapy. And, uh, but as it was, she'd had no access to that and was literally with no way to communicate, being raised by a pimp. Um, who clearly wasn't taking care of her. She was malnourished. She was covered in scabs. Uh, she didn't wear that many clothes. And so the care that most of the care she received was from the state care center. And I think after, because I mean, I didn't go into every story, but after six months of seeing the oppression of women ranging from our Western nation, from my own experience growing up in the United States, in the white evangelical conservative church, and seeing what other women had survived in Africa and Eastern Europe and all of these other places, it was like kind of like the point of no return. Like we, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with women and girls being tr violently raped or beaten or have to fight to go to school, have their rights denied them, being mutilated. It was kind of just like, no, I there's got to be something we can do about this. And so it was that point where I decided I was going to figure out <laughs> something in my vocation. I had no idea to do something about this. And so um, the good news is like with that young girl. So I remember at the time still working through some of my white saviorism and like, can I kidnap her? I will literally kidnap her and take her and adopt her in the United States. And I said, is this possible? And he's like, no, pimps will be violent and kill over their property. We can't go to the cops. They're bought off. And he said, all we have to do is pray and love. And he has been continuing to work in that area and, and somehow got her out of that situation. She is now going to school. He, she now has hearing aids or what he said was medicine in her ears, but maybe some kind of therapy where she is now being taken care of. So all of that to say like, yeah. it's important to listen to the locals because they know more than we do. And he, clearly he cared for something, but witnessing that oppression changed something in me. And so I was, um, my sending organization asked me to start this inner healing program for women or to, I guess, spearhead it. It was an old program. And uh, the whole premise was to have women share their stories in a safe space, realize that they're not alone because there's so much shame and so much secrecy, especially like all over the world. But I knew that very familiar with it growing up in the evangelical church. I was sexually assaulted when I was 13 years old and I didn't tell anyone um, for over a decade um, because there was so much shame and so much secrecy. And with the teachings that we had, it was something, it was my fault. Like what happened to me was my fault. And so this whole idea of allowing women to tell their stories in a safe context and then having a um, woman guide that, uh, like a woman who would oversee it and guide it and make sure these women got the care they needed was kind of the idea. So we did that. We started here in the United States. Um, and then I went around the world again and did these inner healing retreats. And I worked with women who, again, my job was basically to listen to stories. And I heard story after story after story after story of rape, injustice, uh, financial abuse, um, trafficking, like just the most 
uncomprehendable stories that I heard for another six months. And at the end of it, I, I, I was changed. I guess I, I couldn't, again, I felt like there were people need to know what's happening about this. We need to address this. And it wasn't until about a year later, I was leading a trip back to the Philippines. So I worked with women who had been sex trafficked in the Philippines and I was leading another trip back there. And in this context, women are uh, trafficked in a way that, um, so for example, let's talk about climate change. So climate change is hitting the Philippines and that area really hard. It's wiping out entire provinces, farmland. So families that might have many children have no way, all of their survival techniques are gone. You know, their food, whatever is gone. So they'll send oftentimes their older, their oldest daughters to the city, like, Hey, find some work, send some money back to us so we can live. What happens is there's traffickers that are looking for these girls who need jobs to, so their family doesn't starve. Um, and sometimes they knowingly know that it's sex work. Oftentimes they don't, they think it's restaurant work. They think they're going to be serving bars or, or serving uh, drinks and bars and then eventually get trafficked. And so I was in this context and uh, talking to this woman, it was her first night in the bars. And she told me that she was here because she had no other way to feed her children and that her fan or her boyfriend that she was with, was abusive. She was showing me all of these cigarette burns that she had on her body from him. And as I was talking to her, these six drunk guys came up and tried to buy her. Um, and she said, no, technically she should be able to say no, but they weren't taking no for an answer. I said, no, they started grabbing her. Um, and then one of my teammates ran over and they said, why don't you just buy her first? So I ended up buying her. I didn't know what else to do. And these guys still tried to take her. I had a huge fight with the bar managers, me and my teammate eventually won the argument and the, the woman was able to go home for the night. But in their anger, these drunk guys got so much more angry and just grabbed another girl off the stage. And I remember her walking away with them and looking at us with complete terror in her eyes. And I had had a friend, uh, a, a woman I had worked with previously murdered by a client. So I knew the dangers and I'm sure she knew the dangers. She, and I just felt like I made the situation worse. Like maybe I was able to help one woman or the ministry that I partnered with, like put women through college and was actually able to help a lot of women have options in their lives. However, it was just so clear to me in that moment that they were so easily replaced. And I really wanted to ask why, why is this happening? Why, why is there a demand for this in the first place from trafficked women? And so um, the next day, my question was answered or very clearly. Um, I had a, a, a man ask, come up to our group and he's like, why are, why are you here? He's an American guy. And we started to tell him and we asked him, why are you here? And he said, oh, because women here are raised right. They know how to respect men, unlike women in the United States. And he went on this whole tirade about how women should respect men and how women that don't respect men are like the problem. And that's why he comes here. Um, and I remember in that, that moment, something just clicked. I'm like, you sound like all of my evangelical pastors growing up. You sound like the marriage books, love and respect I got growing up. And it was this huge moment of realization that I was being complicit and these gender norms, like for so mm -hmm. long, I tried to believe these gender norms that I was taught 
were right. helpful and good or whatever. And I, I knew they were wrong in my spirit, but I went along with them because this was what godly women did. Yep. And so clearly this was, this man was thought he was so entitled to respect that when he felt like he didn't get it in the United States, he went and got it from trafficked women who had few or no other options, but to give him that respect in quotation marks that he deserved. And that's when I was like, no, like I have to talk to the church. I have to quit my job. I have to get um, men and women to be treated equally because these gender ideas that women are less or need to be submissive or aren't capable of things is exactly the kind of thinking that drives the violence against women. And so I started doing more research on this. And this is actually scientifically like a thing. Like people know this more and more studies are coming out. Um, there's a, a psychologist named Lynn Yonak that does a lot of work on this, but says sexual assault is not due to sexual urges. It's about dominance and it's about control. And the church is one of the biggest upholders of this idea that men need dominance and control and women must be submissive to that. And so that changed everything for me, quit my job, started a podcast called faith and feminism, wrote a book. And so that was a long answer to, I know, to your question, but that's the only way I feel like I can share my experience. So no, thank you for sharing all of that. That's a yeah. lot of difficult experiences, difficult realizations to go through as well. Like what were those realizations like while you were on that journey? Obviously you were away from home. Mm -hmm. You were in a different environment Um, you were supposed to be going there to like help people, but I'm mm -hmm. sure you felt helpless at points oh, as absolutely. well. Hearing these stories. How did that feel for you? I mean, it was so hard because this was everything that I had been taught was right and good. And it was like the mask was torn or the the curtain was torn, whatever you want to say. Yeah. And I could see the power hunger for what it was. I didn't see my upbringing or the teaching I was taught on gender roles as this holy thing anymore. I saw it for mm. what it was, a, a way to protect power a way to maintain power for white men and so it was hard especially because here i am as coming into terms that the, that i'm part of the problem because i tried to agree and even at times taught that women should be submissive so it was it was terrible and it was especially isolating because my community like I said, we're not supposed to talk about this. I mean, you probably know very well that the idea that we can't deconstruct, we can't have doubt. We, we just, you know, we we're supposed to believe. And if we have doubts, then we're not Christian. Um, but it wasn't a lack of faith in Jesus or a lack of faith in God. It was a lack of faith in the institution. And yep. so what options was I left with? but to leave the institution. And so that's why I said, I yeah. like eventually quit my job. Well, actually three weeks later after that, I quit my job. Um, I was actually getting married. I got married and then I quit my job. And um, then, yeah. So then I started to call it out and lost so many friends. Uh, people told me I was going to hell. Um, and I mean, as an outsider, you know, you're from the UK. Well, you said Scotland specifically, you saw the the train wreck of the last four years of Trumpism and Christianity. I mean, that was really when I started to, to question it all as a survivor of sexual assault. Everyone knew I cared about women at my organization. I had worked with them. I was like the anti-trafficking work with exploited women person. And I remember when Trump was elected after he bragged about sexual assault, which I had 
completely devastated me and honestly blindsided me. Maybe I should have saw it coming. I didn't. And I cried the whole day that he was elected and I had to go to work. And I remember half of, I worked in the marketing department, half of the people were crying, half the people were like excited. And I remember talking to a man that I used to trust and look up to about how hard this day was for me. And he said, Megan, this is God's will. And you'll see that one day. And I think that was the beginning of the end for me. Actually, that same man, when I was, so I was also on that trip, I was sexually assault. I had a man, I was trapped while a man masturbated to me by like with two kids. I was teaching tennis lessons for like over an hour. And when that was super traumatic, obviously I hadn't, mm-hmm. it was terrible. Um, but when the word got back to him. He was like a coach. And when the word got back to him, he like called me to see if I was okay. But he prayed for me. And the way he prayed for me said, he said, whatever it is about you that makes bad or men do bad things to you, I pray it leaves. So even in that prayer, I was the problem, not the man that trapped me. Like, and so I, that's just another like example of like, it's never, we never ask questions about the men who is doing the harming, who is sexually assaulting women, who is buying women yet. It is always turned on the woman. And so that's what, when we talk about purity culture and rape culture and the shooting that just happened, this man by his, he says that he had an addiction and that he couldn't stop frequenting these, these, these places uh, where sex acts were performed. And instead of thinking that maybe this is something I need to go to therapy for and get help for. Well, actually it turns out he did try that, but I don't know. He I've cracked for whatever reason. He thought the answer was to eliminate the temptation. It was a woman's fault, right? It was these women's fault. So he had to kill them. So for me, like, of course, there's a huge tie between this idea of like women, you know, cover up, be quiet, be submissive. If something bad happens to you, it's your fault. Don't tell anyone. Don't. And how many times do we have here sexual uh, abusers in the church pastors? And how often does the church protect the pastor instead of the woman? They don't believe the women. And so this is not something that's just, oh, I always hear this idea of individual sin. This is just one bad guy had a bad day. No, this is systematic. This is something that we're teaching our children and our boys on the, that they're dominant and that women have to obey them. And they're on this earth to serve them. That's literally what I was taught. My role as a woman was to serve my husband sexually and in the home and whatever. How, of course, this affects the way we men view women. Of course, this affects the way women view themselves. There's a reason that there's a sexual assault epidemic in the church. There is a reason that this guy thought that women were the problem and went to remove the temptation. So, um, yeah, I, I had that in my own experience where I was sexually assaulted and it was my fault because something bad was attached to me. And when I was 13, the first time I was sexually assaulted, um, my, the week previous, my pastor, cause I was wearing a crew neck t-shirt that when I rose my hands showed it like a small sliver of my stomach. And he told me that I needed to change because, uh, it would make men do bad things. And so a week later, when a man did a bad thing and grabbed my breast, I thought it was my fault. So this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly what needs to change or the violence of women 
the assault of women isn't going to change and the church is too complicit and we need to change that. yeah yeah exactly that's what the whole time you were chatting there um it was specifically that last point i was thinking the whole time about how just that theology of individualism where even just the concepts of like a focus on individual salvation and not seeing things in a collective sense has such a huge impact on the way that you view other problems and other issues so specifically when it comes to women when it comes to sexual assault and rape it's much easier for them than to individualize the issue saying that was a bad man or bad individual rather than seeing it as a a systematic um, or systemic issue. I think specifically over the last few weeks here in the UK, there have been multiple protests, peaceful and some not so, uh, some where police have been uh, aggressive, violent uh, as well regarding the murder of a woman named Sarah Everard. I don't know if you've heard of this story. Yeah, I followed it. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. she was walking home and uh, was murdered by a police officer um, in the park. And from that, a lot has been on social media. I've had a lot of conversations with people along the same lines of it being very individualistic and you see the way that theology informs that. Mm -hmm. So one of the next questions that I would like to get onto is about that aspect of power differentials, especially in systemic things. When it's all around you, there's an even greater power differential that exists there. Um, So sexual assault and domestic violence are often due to these power Mm -hmm. differentials. Can you explain a little bit of what that means? Yeah, I mean, so there's a researcher, his name is Jackson Katz, and he writes actually a lot about this. Um, he talks about, we have this idea that rapists are crawling out of the swamp, but we don't realize that, no, this is our culture. We are producing this. And there's another researcher, um, from India. So she's obviously there's a lot of sexual violence that's happening in India. Um, I remember, so to even hit this point home even further, and I think it was 2012, there was a very, international story of a woman who was raped to death on a public bus. I don't know if you remember this story. Her name is Jayote. I'm actually, I'm pronouncing it very wrongly and I actually should learn how to pronounce her name, but uh, Jayote Singye, and I know I messed that up um, and I will look that up later, but she was raped to death on a public bus. And when they interviewed her rapist, why, why did you do this? They said, um, because she was in, she was supposed to be at home like a good girl doing chores. Being at home doing dishes is what good girls do, not for wearing, not for wandering the street wearing the wrong things. And for context, this woman was leaving a movie theater with her friend in the evening. That was all she was doing. But this rapist said, "I was justified to do this to kill, rape and kill her because she was doing the wrong thing." Her, his idea of womanhood was to stay in home, do the dishes, tidy up, do chores. Uh, Does that sound familiar to the biblical gender roles we were (laughs) raised with? Just about evil, like every evangelical book on how to be a wife ever. Um, And so this whole idea of this this is like individualized. No, this is part of it. And so there's a researcher in India who she interviewed, her job was as a PhD candidate was she interviewed thousands of rapists 
And what she found, again, this is not individual, this is a product of our culture. Um, and so the culture, I want to make clear, it's not just here in the United States or in India or in Africa or whatever. This is a worldwide pandemic of patriarchy, the idea that men are in charge and women are submissive, that men are more intelligent, more equipped. It's a way of dehumanizing women. And when you look at dehumanization, you can you can justify any kind of violence against them. Any kind of genocide that we've seen in the world, it starts with dehumanizing the other person. And what is saying that women are less or likening them to sex objects, even if we look at the media, right? Because so even the media is complicit in this. We so often see women just as sex objects, right? We're just objects there for the sexual satisfaction satisfaction of men. If we look at porn, we see the domination of women and violence towards women again and again and again and again. This is not something that is individualized. This is something we're teaching. This is something we're teaching within the church and without the church that women are less, women are sex objects, women are there for the appearance of men. And if we even want to look at the media, so what the, the, media I grew up with, I got had all of the magazines for women. And what were they all about? How to do these five sex moves that will blow his mind, how to be skinny and lose weight, how to have clear skin and long hair. Everything was geared for how women can be pleasing to men. Everything. My whole ex existence growing up in the church, I was told, how can I be a good housewife? This was what I was groomed for. My you know, outside cultural influence, how can I be sexually attractive to men so I can be valuable? Um, and so this whole idea that I am here as a possession or a property or for the looking of for men and just existing in the world, this is my experience. I get catcalled all the time. Like there, if I am walking by myself, I'd say I get catcalled probably like 20% of the time. Grocery shopping by myself, uh, I probably have some guy say something super inappropriate to me like once a year. Um, just recently I had a guy, I had my, I had a mask on, like you can't even see my face. So we know what he was looking at. And he said, wow, you're such a beautiful creature. Like I, I, I can't, I'm not a creature. First of all, second of all, I'm not, I don't want to know what you think about me or my body. I, it's just this whole idea that I'm, I'm a, for there for men, women are there for men. And so when we're talking about this idea of like sexual assault and sexual, like it's a need for domination and power and control. And we don't see it the other way around. We don't hear, I mean, that's not to say it has never happened. Men have been raped by women, absolutely. But if we're looking statistically at who's doing the harm, far and above it's men. And that's because there's this idea that men are entitled to women's bodies. Even with purity culture that I grew up with, um, don't show it if it's not on the market as if, okay, so if I have a body part showing you're, you're allowed to grab it, like what? That's crazy. Like my body is not there for you to grab or to gawk at. Like it's my body. Um, or like this, again, like I had a small sliver of my stomach when I raised my hands. You're going to make men do bad things. Again, it was always geared towards men. And so when we look at these power differentials here in the United States, uh, women are not represented well in government. We're actually number 71 for gender parity. And a big part of that is because we have very few um, proportionally to our population representation of women in government. Um, and so men are making the decisions. You, we can even see this in healthcare. Um, so... <clears throat> Traditionally, 
when you think of a doctor, it's usually a man. There's more obstacles that a woman has to overcome. Well, that has far reaching consequences on how women are treated at the hospital. There's studies that women, if they come in, our um, heart attack symptoms look different than men's because our bodies are different. And women are seven times more likely to be sent home during a heart attack than man than men. And we have to wait twice as long to receive pain medications because when we have pain, we often get diagnosed with psychosomatic, like, oh, she's something's wrong with her head. She's hysterical. Um, and so this, I mean, there's so many, I could literally go on all day about the ways that not having women representation affects that, but it also affects, of course, the power that we hold in a society. And like I said, when we see these, these stories of sexual assault, it's a pastor and a student, it's a pastor and a congregant, it's a professor and a student, these sexual stories, there's always a power differential. And again, this need for domination and control and this idea that you're entitled to take what you want from a woman. Um, we saw that from the president of the United States of America and Donald Trump. Grab her by the pussy. Cause you know, you can, cause I'm powerful and I can do what I want. So like, this is, this is what I'm talking about. It's all part of our culture and whether or not we value women and whether or not we put them in positions of leadership or power for them to be valued and have some, you know, maybe if there's more women in leadership, there'd be better laws. There'd be, we wouldn't be the only, one of the only, actually the only wealthy country in the world that doesn't have paid maternity leave by law. We're the only one. And so people wonder like, oh, why do people get abortions? Well, maybe because if she has a kid, she can lose her job and that's completely fine and legal. So I just, there's just so many things that you could get me talking about clearly, yeah, but definitely. these power differentials are absolutely the problem here. I think the power differential is also influenced by the lack of accountability that often exists mm -hmm. when men do these yeah. harmful and violent things. Um, I think even of a statistic that I've read in the past few weeks, uh, and it's specifically to England and Wales statistics mm -hmm. around rape. And is basically what we're saying that it's more likely for a man to be raped than falsely accused of rape. Mm -hmm. But not only that, if all the men that are currently serving time for rape in prison were actually falsely accused, it would still be more likely for a man to be raped than falsely accused, mm -hmm. even though those are actual instances where they have been convicted of rape. Um, and it's just heartbreaking to see that that accountability is lacking there. But obviously, you've been speaking out about this. You've been resisting the patriarchal teachings that mm -hmm. the, the church often brings in speaking up for women's rights. So of what's happened since you've began to do that. Um, and it reminds me a lot as well of the way that the prophets would often speak to critique Israel mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, for example. So how has God met you in that process mm -hmm. as well? Yeah, I want to say a quick tidbit because it's not just in uh, the United Kingdom that's having that issue. Here in the United States, only five out of 1,000, five out of 1,000 rapists face jail time. Okay, that's insane. And that's Crazy. a statistic yeah. from RAIN, um, which is our like uh, R-A-I-N-N.org. So if you want to look it up, it's all there. Um, but, and, and, and I'm going to highlight just one more story and then I'm going to answer your question. Yep, yeah. um, so here in the United States, there's the Brock Turner case. I don't know if that 
got yes, over yeah, to, that, that. okay. So there was witnesses. Okay. This woman was completely unconscious being raped out next to a dumpster. There was witnesses that chased him off and, uh, still, still. So even with witnesses, like this should be an open and shut case. She was unconscious and raped and people saw this happening. He still only got six months in prison and then it was shortened to three months in prison because they were more concerned about his future than what she had survived. And throughout the whole trial, she wrote an incredible book about it. It's called Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Throughout the whole trial, her sexual past was dissected. She was told that because she was drinking, it was her fault. Yeah, it was an excuse for him to rape her because he was drinking and not in charge. So again, just another issue. And so I'm going to go ahead and answer your question. Have (laughs) have I received, I I just, it gets me so frustrated. Have I received pushback from the church? Absolutely. Um, It's actually been immensely painful um, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, My husband and I have had to cancel Thanksgiving. So here, I mean, you guys probably are familiar with Thanksgiving in the United States, a time for us to family to be together. And we've canceled plans for that because um, apparently I'm a false teacher and, you know, sending people to hell because I'm talking about women's rights. And um, that's, you know, that's the opinion of some people. I had another friend on my birthday tell me that because I believe Dr. Christine Blassie Ford and the Kavanaugh hearings that I was the liberal agenda and she could no longer be tied to me. And this person was very, very close to me, very close to me. And she sent me that on my birthday. Um, so those are two examples and both of those things happened right around the same time. Um, I've also been told I'm, I've been told I'm going to hell a lot, that I'm a false teacher, that I'm dangerous. Um, just a lot of like, just kind of pushed to the margin. She's not really a Christian. You can't be a Christian and a feminist. You're just go off over there. Cause you're not one of us. Um, but what I found interestingly is that the more I speak up, the more people I have re- reach out to me and say, it's because of people like you that I can actually have faith in Jesus because you present a way that I identify with and no one else is talking about this or whatever. And so, um, for me, my faith in Jesus or God has not been shaken at all. Um, my faith in the institution of the church has been shaken a hundred percent. Uh, my faith in even like, as I've done more research about this, like the, the verses that have been used against women, um, it, And also the Bible has always been used as a weapon. If you look at slavery here in the United States, the Bible was used to justify slavery. Um, If we're even looking at Europe, um, the papal bulls like that were edicted or given or whatever was gave um, Christian, Christian in quotation marks, men the ability to take over other parts of land and claim it for a Christian monarch. Because if it wasn't claimed by a Christian monarch, then you could kill. It was either convert or kill. And so the Bible, if we look at traditionally, historically, the Bible has been used as a weapon. This is not something that's new. This is something that is old. It's, it's, it's probably from, I don't know, the time of Constantine when it was like written into law or whatever. Um, so for me, realizing that there's always been, there's a concept that I'm hearing from a lot of black civil rights activists here, the concept of rulers church versus people's church. 
And the ruler's church has been always using the Bible to justify, protect power, to dominate, to control. And then there's the people's church. So we see the faith of abolitionists or civil rights leaders who will come with, I think, the true version of Jesus who comes to um, kind of push against this. God is Mm -hmm. a God of justice. What is like read Isaiah. It says, don't even talk to me. God is saying, I don't want to hear your prayers or your worship until you wash the blood from your hands. And I think the Bible is a story of people having an idea about God and getting it wrong again and again. And they have to get prophets and whatever and whatever until finally they send Jesus and be like, Hey, like I am a God of peace. Mm-hmm. Um, don't like who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Yep. I'm bringing people in from the margins. These people that you said were dirty, I'm bringing them in. So this whole concept that, I mean, I think that's what I'm doing. These women that you said were dirty, I'm bringing them in these people who said like you couldn't talk to or whatever I'm bringing them in. And so that's my idea is like, Jesus was, I think a true feminist. And one of the, like, when I look at the Bible, I see him empowering women, uh, being funded by women, uh, breaking extreme gender roles to have them as his disciples. So let's talk about the story of Mary and Martha for a second. Um, many people are familiar with that story. The gender roles at that time, the prescribed patriarchal roles is that women did not interact with men on any basis. And they had to be like hidden away, like cleaning and cooking and whatever. And so in the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus comes to this house and uh, Martha is preparing everything for the disciples and getting ready. She's, she's doing what she should do. Um, Mary, on the other hand, sits at the feet of Jesus. And usually you only did that if you were training to become a disciple yourself, broke with every kind of gender role that was thrown at her. And so Martha's like, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, she's breaking her gender role. This is embarrassing. Like, get her to help me in the kitchen, like, tell her what to do. And then that one sentence, I feel like Jesus completely destroys gender roles because he says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. So in that one sentence, this whole like prescription of what women should and should not do, he destroys it because he says, Mary has chosen what is better. Mary has broken with the shackles of gender roles and she has chosen what is better. And so when I look at that story, I look at Jesus and the the liberation that brings. I have chosen what is better to break from the gender roles that oppress and harm and violate women. And I've chosen what is better. And so I have felt close to God. It doesn't look any way kind of like what I was raised to. If I look at my journals, I have kept a, a Jesus journal, I call it, since I was 18. I'm 32 now. Looking over those journals, I can even see the way I've grown in my relationship with God. What used to be a journal said, God, you're so great and awesome and cool. And just like yada, yada, like so many platitudes that have no real depth. God, you're so good bypassing the trauma that I had lived through to a journal that's real and raw and honest where I meet with God, where I commune with God. I can see such a change. But again, I think the church had taught me. To pray to God is like, he's an egotistical maniac that I can't even say anything to him until I give him 10 pages of how great he is. You know, that's not, that's not who God is. And so for me, my relationship with God has changed because my prayers don't look like that anymore. My prayers are like, I am a heart. There was another mass shooting last night in the United States at the, at a grocery store I shopped at when I was in university. Mm -hmm. My prayers, my journal says I am heartbroken that this is happening. I am devastated at the response of Christians. Show me how to make this better. Show me how you can use me 
to make this better. And that means calling my representatives. And so even the way I've prayed has changed, but I have no doubt God's with me. Like I am not, do not be concerned about my relationship with God because we're tight, but do be concerned about the way you treat women because the fruit of that is bad. And that's another biblical tenet. Look at the fruit of things and look at the fruit of these patriarchal gender roles that you've been teaching. Yeah. And one thing I was thinking of there was one of the sort of tropes or just sayings Mm -hmm. that uh, evangelicals throw out a lot of times is maybe like, God loves you too much to leave you as you are. Um, and thinking about how they often apply that in the sense of you having to change to a specific, in this case, let's say mm-hmm. gender role or to become a certain mm-hmm. thing to like, he can't leave you as that liberal person that you once were or whatever. <laughs> but really that oftentimes the accusation that's made of heretic or false teacher or anything like that, it, it seems as if there's like a fear there that exists that mm-hmm. if like you actually allow your heart to be broken for those who have been treated unjustly for those who are on the margins Mm -hmm. that you will actually change and that you can't sit in your comfortable middle-class white church bubble anymore Mm -hmm. um and that Mm -hmm. in reality god does love you too much to like not (laughs) not let you change but it's just completely different from what we were taught or told uh, Mm -hmm. while being part of the church one of the things that you kind of mention in your book is how um, some Christians ask you how your marriage works if it's like not complementarian. So mm-hmm. how do you, how do you respond to things yeah. like that um, when people throw these questions to you? Um, so that's I don't get that question as much anymore. I used to get it a lot. Like, well, how do you make decisions if someone's not in charge? I'm like, have you had a friendship with anyone ever? <laughs> like, how did you decide where to get food? No one's yeah. like, I have the trump card and we're getting pasta. Like, that's not I don't. That's not a healthy relationship. That's domination and control. Um, and I think that's what complementarian marriage is. Anyways, but anyways, to get there, it's very simple. So it's a concept called egalitarianism. And the idea is that we talk to each other and make decisions together and we empower one another. And so um, I give an example in my book. Um, I wanted to quit my job because I thought it was bad and I was not doing what I should do. And my husband empowered me to quit my job, supported me as I kind of found my feet, found what I was doing. My and in return, my husband hated his job. He was a chemical engineer after I was more sure about what I was doing. I had a book contract and all that stuff. Um, I was like, well, if you hate your job, like, why don't you quit it? And I'll support you as you find a new career. And so he quit his job, went back to uh, computer programming school. Um, it was like a boot camp for six months. And now he has a, a, a job and a career that he loves where he gets to work from home doing computer programming. Um, so all of that to say is we had a conversation. We talked about how we could empower each other. If we're even talking about household duties in the house, those are not... Uh, Again, I don't know why everyone wants to put formulas to everything. So for me, I love yard work. I love mowing the lawn. I love gardening. I love anything outside that I like to do. My husband has allergies. And if he like a blade of grass touches him, he like breaks out in hives. And so he doesn't like yard work, understandably so, because he is allergic to a lot of the um, grass and weeds and stuff. And so that's totally fine because I like being outside and so he can be inside and, or usually he's actually working in the shop doing like woodworking stuff. But the whole idea that like, as a woman, my job is to be inside the home and not outside of the home is silly. And another example of this is I hate emptying the dishwasher. It is the bane of my existence. And so Dustin, 
always empties the dishwasher. I do a lot of other household chores, um, but we, I mean, I think we even out. But again, another thing that well, women should be doing the dishes. Well, no, they should not always. <laughs> and so it's just like having a conversation and realizing what your giftings are, making compromises when no one, neither of us, like, you know, want to wash the dog, but we still have to wash the dog. So we take turns washing the dog. It's really simple. It's just having conversations making compromises, doing work that honors both of you. And it, and I think we try and put formulas to it and there doesn't need to be any formula. We can just mm -hmm. have a relationship and a conversation because we're both human beings with brains that can, that can come to good conclusions, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's even just thinking about the arguments that are made for complementarianism it seems as if it's less true to scriptures in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh, or it just like, doesn't acknowledge the reality of scripture sometimes um yeah i think i was reading something lately just about um the authorship of some of the letters from paul and mm -hmm. some of the most infamous verses about complementarianism complementarianism mm -hmm. and submission come from some of paul's later letters like mm -hmm. ephesians or timothy and things like that and just reading how the earlier letters which are pretty much agreed by scholars that they're genuine pauline letters talk mm -hmm. about there's now no male nor female it's a very egalitarian yeah. approach but then the ones that are seen as attributed to maybe followers of paul or other people mm -hmm. or not genuinely paul are the ones that seem to allow for that culture uh, that patriarchy to like mm -hmm. seep in again of almost like a corrective to Paul's actual writings um so I think when you actually look at the scholarship you look at what's available and trying to be true to what scripture says as well that complementarianism isn't as strong as many people try to argue that it actually mm -hmm. is um so just for the next topic, and just as we begin to come to a close, I would love to talk a little bit about that connection we mentioned at the start uh, between purity culture and rape culture, if you want to comment on that. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to also respond to your thing because I yeah, can't Of course, myself. no problem at all. <laughs> Um, so I think people look at the Bible, I think they, we've been taught a wrong understanding of Bible. So there's a, dif uh, a difference between the Bible being prescriptive or descriptive. Yeah. So it's very evident that the Bible is written in a very patriarchal time. We even read about the founders of our faith, like Abraham, he gave his wife to, to Pharaoh as a sex slave. That is in the Bible. Do we think this is a good thing? Is this what we should be doing? Absolutely not, but it's what mm -hmm. happened. And I think yeah. what happens is we look at the Bible as everything is a rule book. Everything is how it should be. When we look at the Bible, I think it's actually a description of people trying again, trying to find God, getting it wrong a lot of the time and having profits and, and correction from God saying, that ultimately came in Jesus. Like, Hey, this is actually who I am. Not this idea of God. Like, for example, we think we look at Paul, he was, uh, the, con the conversion of, you know, originally he was like this, um, I'm trying not to say a swear word. He was a jerk. He was a <laughs> Pharisee, um, who was super religious and persecuted Christians. Okay. So he had this conversion as well. Um, of, of like, he thought he knew who God was and he was the ultimate thing. And then Jesus met him and wrecked that world of religion. And so when people talk about 
this oh well it's in the bible well that doesn't mean that's how things should be like what did jesus teach is more what i'm concerned about and of course there's tons of scholarship specifically about those problem verses so i'm just going to refer your guest to a great book about this it's called the making of biblical womanhood by beth alfenbar um so she that book comes out april 20th and or maybe this podcast is airing later and it's already out but it's a excellent resource um to make that connection between purity culture and rape culture Um, again, I was raised with the idea that my body would make men do bad things. I was likened to an object. Um, I don't know if this happened in the UK, but in the United States, a lot of girls were told that we were, I was told I was a flower and each time I did something sexual, I would lose a petal and pretty soon I would be a bald flower and no one wants a bald flower because they're useless. They're not even pretty anymore. So why would you want to be a bald flower? Um, and not only was this likening me to an object, it was also extremely vague of what was sexual and what wasn't. I think it was kissing, whatever. But the the point is that when I was sexually assaulted by no fault of my own, I now see uh, when I was 13 years old, I thought I had just lost a petal um, and that I was no longer valuable because my husband didn't have rights or whatever to my body because they had been taken by someone else. Um, And so again, this whole idea that like I'm an object and my worth is in my purity or in my sexuality or how pure I am is just super damaging. And I don't like another like analogy people were given is like girls are like spit in cups or licked Oreos or like the, the list of objectifying young girls goes on and on and on. And then we hear phrases like, if it's not on the market, don't show it. Uh, Be modest as hottest. Keep your body pure. And all of the girls went to the pool with their full clothed where the guys wore nothing. And we were told we're doing this so we don't become a stumbling block. So you don't make your brothers do bad things or want to do bad things. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter what I was wearing. I've been sexually assaulted. Women who might be in a burqa get raped all the time because this is not an issue of what is showing and what is not showing. This has nothing to do with the victim or their survivor of sexual assault. This is entirely to do with the man who is raised to believe that he was entitled to parts of bodies that we're showing. And so this whole idea of like, well, you know, this almost scapegoating, like men aren't responsible if they see a woman's body and that, you know, that varies in extremity, like in some, like some, uh, conservative churches, it's like the girl has to be wearing like a head covering and like a long skirt and, and her ankles can't be showing in some contexts. It's like, you can't wear spaghetti straps, but either way, the impetus is always on the woman to control what she is wearing and not on the man to control his actions or to control his thoughts. And so it's really this way of scapegoating and making women the problem and not men. And it's this whole concept of like, it's so interesting to me because it's like men are supposed to be in charge of everything except their sexual urges, in which case a woman or a girl is supposed to stop that. And so there's, to me, a very clear um, 
tie between that rape culture and like I'm entitled to your body because it's showing and because I can't control my sexual thoughts. And even what we teach in marriage books, a lot of evangelical marriage books say that a husband is entitled to his wife's body at all times. There are websites that say marital rape is not possible because a woman's body is not her own when she gets married. These are all ideas of men's entitlement to women's bodies. And what is rape culture, but men's entitlement to women's bodies. Yeah. I think one thing that you pick up on quite quickly, when you begin to hear a lot of these analogies and metaphors that are given within purity culture is that they're all very negative. Um, and they all view mm -hmm. sex as this negative thing as well. Um, that a lot of the times, even for people who have went through that, they've followed the rules, have made it the whole way they get to marriage, mm -hmm. that then there's a, still this stigma that exists surrounding sex yeah. and that couples then have a, a difficulty to actually engage with each other intimately. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know how, they've never been taught anything about sex other than avoid it at all costs. Um, so how mm -hmm. do you wish the church would handle the conversation on sex better? Oh my gosh, my goodness. I there's I have so many thoughts on this. Um well, I will tell my personal story when I first got married. Um I struggled to have pleasurable sex because um I first of all didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to ask for it. It was hard for me to remove the idea that sex was bad. And then on top of that, I was on birth control, which totally wrecked my hormones, which just made it not super great for me. But my thought was, well, I just need to offer up my body more. I need to, you know, whatever, instead of like having a conversation and getting to the root of the issue. And so this whole idea, like I waited until I was married to have sex and I thought it was going to be great and amazing and all of this stuff. And at the same time, when I got married, it was disappointing. And it wasn't super great for him either, because he's like, why are you enjoying, you know, why are we struggling to, for you to enjoy this more? And so, I mean, I eventually got my birth changed my birth control. Um, that helped immensely. And I had to do a lot of deconstructing of these ideas of uh, that sex is bad. And um, it's so interesting to me because when I was struggling in this area, I read all these Christian marriage books and all of them were like masturbate. And I'm like, what? Like I was told my whole life, I have never, because I thought it was so bad, never masturbated. And now I'm okay. It's okay for me to masturbate because it's about my husband's and his enjoyment and his pleasure. And so that was really frustrating to me. But I also think there's this huge lack of knowledge of women's bodies. Like, um, I didn't know my different body parts. I didn't know my clitoris or my urethra, or my vulva. I didn't have all of these terms. I didn't know what felt good and what didn't because my body was just shamed, you know, and, and, and anything I did to explore my body was just shamed. And so kind of deconstructing those ideas, my body is not bad. My body is not a source of lust. My body, like it is not bad for me to enjoy sex. And now I have a very great sex life. So like deconstructing that was really, really, really important for me. But I also think there's a huge problem that we don't talk about sex. It's so taboo. We don't talk about the struggle. The whole idea is like sex is ethical if, if you're married is completely bogus because how many times is unethical sex where women are not respected? I think ethical sex is having consensual, enjoyable, respectful sex. How much unethical sex is happening within the context of marriage a lot 
a lot because women are not being valued or respected. And it's all about the man's pleasure. So there's that whole idea that I think we need to deconstruct. And then on top of that, because they're not even teaching for boys, I think with you know, all these hormones raging and a lack of resources, they often turn to porn and porn is a terrible teaching for how sex should be. It's a lot of violence, a lot of domination of women. And I think, um, if we talked about this, if we gave education about this, I think there would be a, if we empowered women, because I also think another reason porn is so popular is we see this domination of women, this control of women, and this gets people off. And I know that porn culture and Tra uh, sex trafficking are related because the woman I talked to said men would come and ask for these crazy sex acts that they felt like they couldn't ask from their par partner or these violent sex acts that they felt like they couldn't act get from their partner. So it's also putting those women at risk. They're kind of like the disposable, like, let me just use you to do the things that are actually so not respectful. I want to do it with my partner. Um, so this whole idea of like, just not talking about it, not educating, not saying, Hey, it's normal to have a sex drive. That's not a bad thing. Let's talk about what to do with that sex drive. Let's talk about um, how to respect the other people. Okay, that girl is making you feel aroused. Well, let's talk about it. How can we respect her and see her as a full person, not as a temptation or a stumbling block because she's not a body, she's a person. And so I think we just totally need to reframe the whole conversation about sex. I don't think I have the clearest answers of like rules because I don't actually think it's about rules. I think it's about the concept of consent and respect. And when we start having those conversations, then we change things. And so, uh, yeah, I guess that would be my answer is just starting to start young. And actually I read an article that in the, I think it was in the Netherlands, um, where, um, they start doing sex ed in kindergarten, but like, not like talking about sex, but talking about the whole idea of consent. Does she want you to hug her? She doesn't want you to hug her. Maybe take a step back. Let's talk about our bodies. What is okay to touch? What is not okay to touch? And so even starting this idea really, really young of, of consent and that it seems to be working over there. So yeah. I think as well, like on that is when I think about like what the church needs to do to have this conversation is first of all, just be honest and be direct. Mm -hmm. So like if you're teaching children, for example, uh, in a family setting, whatever, um, about sex, then like be direct. Don't use an analogy or a metaphor when you're talking about body parts, right. like call a vagina a vagina, mm -hmm. like make it simple so that like if there are any yeah. instances of assault or abuse or anything like mm -hmm. that then the child has the language to be able to explicitly say right. this is what's happened because that's one way mm -hmm. of almost disarming the abuser and making right. it easier to uh, bring accountability as well um right. and then honesty just because the conversation often hasn't happened previously uh, people feel like they can't talk about it and they're having these mm -hmm. very normal natural urges and desires mm -hmm. and yet feel horrible for having them um, right. so I, th I think mm -hmm. those for me honesty and just being direct with it and clear uh, are important yeah and also I think that the, the proper terms that you brought up is so important yeah. because if we refuse to use the proper terms that we're teaching that it's shameful yeah. right that what this is, is actually a shameful thing instead of saying, no, this is a proper term. Like you're not going to make up a note, a, a name for like your nose. Like you're not going to call it like a bonk bonk. Like that's teaching people that, 
this is something we don't talk mm-hmm. about because we don't address it directly. And so that even perpetuates shame against that. Yeah, definitely. And just finally, what advice would you have for any woman trying to find their voice? Maybe they're in a church just now where they feel they can't talk about these things. They're maybe scared of the consequences for for talking about these things as well, or in a marriage where they can't bring up the fact that like they still don't really know where they're at with sex or anything like that. So there's a number of different situations that could be covered, but any woman who's trying to find her voice, um, what advice would you have? I would first, um, I think what's so important is to know that we're not alone. I think that was one of the most transformative thing that helped me find my voice is realizing that what was happening to me, what had happened to me wasn't just happening to women I had grown up in the church with. It was happening to women around the world. And when you realize that this is not just me, it's extremely liberating and it gives you courage to speak up. And so I would say find people, um, even if it's like a podcast like or an Instagram page, find something or someone that makes you feel less alone. I think that's step one, someone that you can talk to about it. Um, and then I think step two is start when you feel ready, start to use your voice. And I'm not saying that there won't be hardship in that because I've already shared that I experienced a lot of hardship in speaking up. But I just, a piece of advice I think I read in a book and I, I can't even remember where I read it now. I think it was one of Brene Brown's books, but remembering who you speak for and not your critics. Um, whenever people come against me, I, I, I don't focus on their critique. I focus on uh, why do I speak up? Why does this matter? And I think of all of the women that I've met, women and girls I've met around the world, I think of my friends who have survived sexual assault or sexual abuse. I think of uh, my, you know, my mom being treated differently because she was a a divorced woman in the church. Um, I think of myself feeling so much shame about my body. And I remember, of course, God is for women. Of course, like God created women in his image. Of course, God is for women. And so it just reminds me to speak up. And I also look at women in the Bible. And it seems like nearly every time a woman is uh, mentioned in the Bible, she's pushing past her gender role. Like let's think of Esther who has a whole book in her name. What did she do? She broke her husband's commands to save a a race of people. And so um, I I, I think of powerful women who've gone before me. And I think of women who are to come after me and I speak for them. And so number one, find that you're not alone because I think it's so important to know you're not alone. And number two, use your voice and remember who you speak for, not who speaks against you. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, If anyone's been listening to this today, they've enjoyed what you've said, they want to find out more. Maybe this is the first that they've felt like they've actually been heard or or seen on these issues. They didn't realize that this conversation was something that was active and happening. Where can they find you and your content? And where can they get your upcoming book, Woman? rising Mm -hmm. thanks for asking so you if you are like i said the woman i just mentioned i have a whole podcast called faith and feminism which i'm sure you will feel seen in those conversations that we have there um but um if you want to follow me on social it's just my first and last name which i'm sure will be in the show notes somewhere but um it's hard to spell 
but, and you probably won't remember if I spell it for you, but just Megan Chance. I have a website that has that name. That's where I am on Twitter. That's where I am on Instagram. I'm the only one that I know of in the world. So if you spell it right, you should find me. Um, and then my book will be available. So I know that you guys are listening in the UK. So, um, it will be available on Amazon. Um, uh, and I, I don't know where else you guys buy your books, but probably, definitely on Amazon. So um, I, yeah, it's also available for my publisher, but I've already had people reach out saying, hey, I'm in Mexico or Canada or whatever, and um, it doesn't ship here. So check out Amazon. Okay. Cool. Great stuff. Well, yeah. I'll put all that in the show notes and uh, some of the other maybe like resources or studies that we've mentioned throughout as well. I'll try and put a link to as much as possible so that you can get all that information if you're interested. But thanks so much uh, for coming on again today, Megan. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.